doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Cynthia. And I'm your host, Paula. And we are Dolls Dolls and and Doom. Doom. Cynthia, I have some stories that I've certainly heard covered before, and I'm sure you have too. But I also have a different angle. A friend of mine was there, and he told me his own personal experiences. But I'll save that for the end. Okay. Three couples were murdered, and one couple was never found, but they were presumed dead all by the supposed hands of a serial killer. This is the story of the Colonial Parkway Murders. Cynthia, didn't we have a winner in the drawing? We did! So for those of you who are just beginning to listen, we just celebrated our one-year anniversary of the show. So we did a giveaway, and Kelsey is our big winner. So Kelsey, check your inbox we will be contacting you to get you your candle. Yes, congratulations, Kelsey. Yay, Kelsey! And thank you so much for the kind review. And if any of you would love to help us out, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So on this highway, there are no streetlights, and there's always at least two park rangers. But in a book by Blaine Pardo, titled A Special Kind of Evil, he writes, It gets creepy at night. There's a different crowd. The tourists are gone. We've heard stories of partying and peeping toms and creepy cops. It's definitely a shady area. So this is just like a long stretch of highway where just there's not a lot of traffic? It is. Okay, so the Colonial Parkway is a three-lane highway in Virginia. It's 23 miles long, and it connects Yorktown, Jamestown, and Williamsburg. It's hard to believe that such a beautiful and historic location could be the site of such horrific deaths. But sadly, that's exactly what it is. The first couple to be murdered were two women, Kathleen Thomas and Rebecca Ann Dowski. Kathleen was 27, a U.S. Naval Academy graduate. In fact, she was one of the first females to graduate the academy. She was also a police officer and a veteran, so she was a strong woman inside and out. Rebecca, 21, was a bubbly senior at the College of William and Mary. She loved people, she held two jobs, and she was working as a clerk in the college's English department and caring for little ones at a daycare center. They had only been dating a few months. They were in a computer lab earlier that day on campus. They were found October 12th, 1986 by a jogger. He reported it initially as a car accident, but of course, it was much worse. Kathleen's car, a white Honda Civic, was located by the Cheatham Annex Overlook. Their clothes were on and there was no evidence of sexual assault, nor did it seem to be a robbery as both their purses and money were found inside the car. An autopsy revealed rope burns around their wrists and necks. Both their throats had been strangled and slashed. Kathleen was almost decapitated. Diesel fuel had doused the car and the bodies, but it had not ignited. Kathleen was definitely fighting back as a clump of hair was found in her fist. The car was on federal property, so park rangers had to wait for the FBI to show up. They noticed there was not enough blood in the car for that to have been the crime scene. They had to have been murdered somewhere else and the rope used to strangle the women was not found in the car. The second couple was David Nobling and Robin Edwards. David was 20 and he had just gotten a new truck, a black Ford Ranger, and it was a big deal. He read the whole manual. He wanted to make sure he knew exactly how to take care of it. 
Robin was only 14 and had a thing for older men. She was strong-willed and had a history of reckless behavior and running away. It's actually unclear what they were doing that night. David had actually taken Robin home earlier that night, but it was assumed she snuck out to meet him. David's truck was found near the south shore of the James River Bridge in the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge. The truck looked as if they had just stepped away for a second. The key was in the ignition, the radio was on, the windshield wipers were going, and a wallet was on the dashboard. Their clothes were inside the truck and their bodies washed up onto the beach at Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge three days after they went missing. They had both been shot in the head, execution style. There were fingerprints inside the truck and they were collected, but then later they were lost. The third couple was Cassandra Lee Haley and Richard Keith Call. Cassandra was 18 and Richard, who went by Keith, was 20. They met through his ex-girlfriend and were out on their first date. Keith loved computer science and was described as an old soul. Cassandra enjoyed modeling and gymnastics. They told their parents they were going to a movie, but really they were going to a party. People at the party said they didn't seem to be into each other. They were friendly and talking. It just wasn't a love connection. Are you familiar with that? Because I've definitely been there. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> In fact, when you said that, I was like, hmm, I know that feeling. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's like, okay, this person's nice, but mm, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny how you can kind of know that almost immediately. Yes. I've never had an experience ever where I've been on a date with somebody or even not a, a date, even in a group setting and been like, I don't like this person. And then later grown to like them in a romantic way. Okay. It's either I can tell almost immediately upon meeting someone if I could ever like them romantically. Yeah, I know what you mean. And by the opposite side of the coin, I guess I can also tell when I'm instantly going to be friends with somebody. Yes. Like when I met you. It was just that instant yes. connection of, okay, this person is awesome. We have a lot in common. Yes. I can see this turning into a great friendship. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> just click. Yeah. So they were seen leaving the party between 1.30 and 2 a.m., but the couple was never seen again. Keith's red Toyota Celica was found by park rangers, unoccupied, located at the York River Overlook. The windows were down, the driver's side door was open, and the keys were inside. There were clothes inside, so they took the clothes and found her checkbook and called her parents. Her parents told the rangers they had reported her missing. That's when the rangers realized they just disturbed a crime scene. So what did they do? They took the clothes back and attempted to put everything as they no. had found it. Yeah, so they're disturbing it even further. And planting, well, I guess, I don't know if that would fall under planting evidence, but kind of. And they're also adding their own fingerprints to evidence. Right, what yeah. a mess. And to make it even worse, for some strange reason, the rangers waited all day before calling the FBI. Maybe they just didn't have any, any experience and just did not know what to do. I Sounds guess. like it, because they yeah. totally screwed this up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe they were brand new. The fourth couple was Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer. Daniel, 21, was the brother of Anna's fiancé, Clint. I found some articles that say fiancé and some that just say dating. You see, Anna, who was 18, was dating Daniel's younger brother. Daniel was going to move in with the couple for a while. So Daniel went to his old place to pick up his stuff, and on the way, he dropped Anna off at her parents' house so she could visit. When he was done packing, he picked her up, and they headed back to Virginia Beach. But they never arrived. 
Clint called his mom to say they never showed up. On September 5, 1989, Daniel's car, a gold Chevrolet Nova, was found abandoned at I-64, parked at a New Kent rest area. It looked to be going in the wrong direction. Their bodies were found in a wooded area approximately a quarter mile from the rest area. Though their bodies were skeletonized, an autopsy would later show one of them suffered knife wounds. All of Daniel's stuff was still inside the car. The car showed signs of being in a wooded area, which was weird because they were on the highway. There was a possible sighting by a trucker who said he saw their car at an eastbound rest stop, but someone else said they saw them at a westbound rest stop. The search went on for two weeks and they were eventually found deeper in the woods under a heating blanket. She was wearing Daniel's shoes. Both bodies were badly decomposed. Anna's wallet was found near the body along with her social security card. They were unable to rule out robbery. And this is weird. There was a roach clip attached to the driver's side window. Investigators feel like it was the killer saying, you're never going to catch me. Okay. A roach clip, like for smoking marijuana? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And when I had watched the video on YouTube, it's it's basically like a little clip and it has two little beaded pieces that, yarn pieces that hang down with little feathers at the end of it. Okay. So that's what it looks like. Do investigators believe that all of these murders are connected? Some do and some don't. Because they're all a little, like, one, the couple was fully clothed, but two, the couples were not clothed. Right. The first was strangulation and then slit throats. Right. We have gunshots, right? Right. And then we have knife wounds on another couple. So if it is the same person, wow. Yeah. They keep going back and forth with their M.O., Right. Okay, interesting. Fred Atwell, who was an officer at the time of the investigations, but he didn't have any direct involvement, said there were 84 pictures leaked from the FBI, and when he went to them, they seemed completely unbothered by it. So he then went to the media, and then the FBI said, we will reopen the cases. At the time, Atwell seemed like a hero, shining a light on these murders, but this also made him look a little bit like a suspect inserting himself in the investigation. He fit the profile, the one where the killer seemed to be an officer. Oddly enough, he reached out to the victim's families and became obsessed, which made him look even more guilty. Okay, that's weird. Yeah. Like, we we like true crime, but we're not, like, you know, obsessing about... You know what I mean? Like, almost to the point of, like, we're not inserting ourselves in investigations. We're We're not not calling the family, seeing what info we can squeeze out. Right. That's, um... That's a little odd. Yes, I agree. In 2011, he was arrested for holding a woman at gunpoint and stealing less than $100. In 2012, he committed fraud by stealing approximately $300 from the fund for the victim's families that was going towards hiring a private investigator. He was sentenced to three years, but he died in jail. Ron Little was a Gloucester private investigator that injected himself into the investigation. He claimed he was being investigated by the FBI. However, when questioned, the FBI said that Little wasn't even on their radar. Other investigators and family members of the victims considered Little a prime suspect. Little was originally from New Zealand. He had a rap sheet back home a mile long. Eventually, he was deported, leaving a wife and child in Virginia. 
But he was a private investigator? Yes. First of all, how do you get to be a private investigator with a rap sheet a mile long? I'm guessing he changed his name and just created this job for himself. Yeah, must be. Okay, so if your job is a private investigator, that to me makes a little more sense as to why you might get involved. Right, and call the families and ask questions. Right, you know, to me that makes a little more sense if he's like made it his passion project kind of thing. True. If he's like freaking the families out and stuff like that, then there was obviously something off about him. I agree because that was the reaction of the families. They they thought he was a prime suspect. So I'm guessing the way that he came off was a little creepy or a little obsessive for them to feel that way. Right. And then the fact that he has that rap sheet, I don't know what kind of crime. Do you know if it's like violent crime or? I do have a little bit of information. Okay. So William Bittner from INS said, quote, if the guy was a suspect in any federal investigation, I don't care if it was drug smuggling or murder or what, someone would have filed an order to detain him in this country, not deport him. We never received such a request from any agency to detain him, end quote. He was being investigated, but for totally unrelated charges, like falsely filing for visas for citizenship. So Little had just turned out to be someone completely unreliable who just wanted attention. Okay. So it wasn't violent. Right. Like the first guy you mentioned who's holding a woman at gunpoint. Yes. You know, like there's a, to me, there's a big difference between violent crime and, you know, filling out fraudulent paperwork to get a visa. Right. (laughs) Right. You know? Yes. So. So let's talk about theories. Some people felt that it was someone who worked in law enforcement or a wannabe. They wanted authority and power. All the glove boxes were open, wallets in the car, out of purses, like a cop had asked to see ID and registration. Ooh. Right? Okay. So the driver's side windows were down, and an officer or someone posing as one could easily get the driver to exit the vehicle. (gasps) A family member of Keith's, Joyce, said, quote, I've always thought it was law enforcement or maybe someone posing as a cop. In all of these cases, you have young, healthy teenagers and young adults who aren't just going to stand there and let someone overpower them. So it has to be someone that they, at least at the moment, would feel comfortable with. End quote. See, and that was my thought. I was like, if you're in your car, you can drive away. Yes. You can... You know, if someone came up to me pointing a gun and I'm in my car, yeah, I'm going to be shocked and maybe freeze for a second, but I'm going to probably speed away as opposed to, but that makes sense. Perfect sense. Because that is the one scenario where you would do exactly what you're told. Exactly. And that one position would, you would have the driver's side window down, the wallets out, the glove boxes open. Absolutely. One answer to make all of those things reasonable. Mm Mm-hmm. Another theory is it's a team of killers. In the first case, the two girls. Kathleen was strong. It would have been very hard to get control over her. It was obvious that she fought, but with a strong woman plus another young and healthy woman, it would have been very hard to fight, bound, and strangle both of them. And she, Kathleen was a police officer. Yes, she was the Navy officer, mm-hmm. the police officer, and a veteran. Yeah, so... She was very strong. Yeah, she's going to put up a fight. Yep. But if this person, sorry, (laughs) if this person had a weapon and she was unarmed, but again, why would you, if you're in the safety of your car, you know what I mean? But if, if somehow, 
I'm just thinking, like, in what scenario would you go along with something that somebody was telling you to do? Right. And if they had a weapon pointed, say, at your girlfriend or something like that, that might change your behavior. Exactly. The Virginia State Police Department actually investigated one of their own. It was rumored that an officer went rogue, but there was not enough evidence for this to be proven. Some say these four cases are not connected. A private investigator named Steve Spinola feels the girls' murders were a hate crime, and David and Robin's murder was a robbery gone out of hand. In the case of Daniel and Anna, they may have also been murdered after being robbed. All of the couples, or seem to be couples, had these things in common. The car left poised to be stolen, or it looked abandoned. Bodies found in varying degrees of undress. Bodies found not far from the car. The car was not the crime scene. They were all college age. It had to be someone who knew the area, as some of the bodies were so far from the road as to not be seen when you're driving by. In 2007, the disappearance of Cassandra Haley and Keith Call was featured on the investigation discovery show, Sensing Murder. Investigators brought in psychics Pam Coronado and Lori Campbell for assistance. Psychic Pam felt the killings were all related, but the cars were not where the actual violence took place. Okay. I wondered about that first one being a hate crime, because this was back in the 80s. Right. When things were had a stigma... And, and stuff, and I wondered about that. Yeah, very different for a hate crime. Yep. It's been 35 years since the first couple was killed. Unfortunately, there have been no public updates for 11 years. Wow. I know, it's awful. So none of them have been officially solved? None no, of these? None of them. Some families are hopeful with genetic genealogy and renewal of public interest. Over the years, it was the victims' families who did most of the work renewing interest and pressuring law enforcement for updates. Half of the parents of the victims have died, the other half are older and in poor health, so now it's up to the siblings to step in and take the lead. William Thomas, the brother of Kathleen, said of his sister, quote, in the 35 years since she passed, when I see all these amazing women running for president and vice president, Congress, senators, ambassadors, CEOs, Kathleen would have been one of these amazing women. She would have been 62 this year. He's made it his own personal mission to get answers. He's made himself available to the public and follows up on every credible tip, turning it over to the FBI. He manages a Facebook page called Colonial Parkway Murders to help build awareness for the four cases. He now co-hosts a podcast called Mind Over Murder. It covered the Parkway Murders in detail trends in crime, and DNA advancement. Some of the family members of the victims formed a united front, working together to get answers they so desperately want and deserve. In 2010, the FBI met with the family members to go over the status of the cases. The families are pushing for another meeting, as well as to have the DNA tested. Thomas said three out of the four cases have DNA to be tested. Both the FBI and Virginia State Police refused to comment on the presence of DNA. Genetic genealogist C.C. Moore with Parabon Nanolabs, which I know you've mentioned in one of your earlier episodes. That's right. I love the Parabon. That's right. Go science. So she said that genealogy involves linking DNA of unidentified persons or suspects 
to relatives who've already uploaded their DNA to genealogy sites. The Golden State Killer was found this way through a third cousin. I find this absolutely remarkable. It's amazing. And the problem with this DNA testing is there's just so many cases sitting in these labs somewhere, in these freezers or wherever they're stored. Did you know that rape kits are often not, like, tested? The DNA isn't run for years? Unfortunately, yes. I have heard that. And it's just a matter of backlog? Yeah. Just, that's all? We need to hire more people in the labs. Right. And and companies like this, like Parabon, that are working to get things tested and stuff, that's just amazing. But it would be so wonderful if we could just get these things moving. Because yes. think of all the cases that are going to get solved. And then think of all the people we're going to get off the streets. Absolutely. And all the cases we will prevent from happening in the future. Right. It's amazing. It is. I would, if any of our listeners know more about that. We would love to hear from you because, hey, if it's a matter of, like, you just need a volunteer to do something. I'll sign up. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. But it's it's sad to me to know that a woman can be raped and there's DNA of her attacker. And it just sits on the shelf. And it's going to sit for years while this person runs around attacking other women. Right. When they could have been captured, you know, and, and pay for their crimes. It's just 100%. sickening to me. Yeah, I wish I could go back 10 years and start studying so I could be doing that right now. Well, it's not too late. Start well, today. Yeah, I'm almost 200, so. <laughs> That's true. Just getting a little senile. <laughs> Just a little. Moore said, quote, We are reverse engineering the family tree of this unknown person and eventually their identity through the family tree with whom they share DNA with one or two genealogy databases that we have access to. They analyzed DNA to pinpoint the exact relation between these two family members tested, which would also allow law enforcement to narrow down their suspect list. Moore also said, the new advancement has led to hundreds of arrests across the country. In the past three and a half years, genealogy has helped solve 350 cases. That's amazing. It's so amazing. Thomas said the FBI contacted him to let him know his sister's DNA was being sent to Quantico to be tested. However, this was over a year ago and nothing further was done. Moore said it's possible the sample was too small or too degraded to be tested. There's always hope that you might find more DNA, find smaller amounts with more advanced techniques to detect DNA. So as long as there's something left to analyze, there's always hope that it will be solved with genetic genealogy. It's so cool what science can do. I, I literally had a test done. Well, I had a blood draw done yesterday because I'm getting to that age. I'm almost 40 where, you know, women's bodies change. Yes. <laughs> I was talking to my doctor. Okay, doctor, like, what do I need to start thinking about? And she was like, well, you have some family history of cancer. So we're going to do this little blood draw. And then we're going to send it to this place that is going to then come back and tell you what cancers and what percentage of whatever cancer gene I have in my body. Wow. So that I can know, okay, you know what? This here could possibly pop up later or this or you're all clear. There's nothing and, you know, you are not genetically predisposed to anything. And she said they can do this like with everything. They can do this with reproductive. They can test a man and a woman, see what, you know, genes they carry. Wow. And if they have anything that, you know, might pop up. 
any disabilities or things like that, they can try to like avoid, you know, avoid those things from coming together so that offspring maybe doesn't carry some of those genetic traits, just all kinds of things. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. All of those things with one little blood test. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. So the biggest thing now is just getting insurance companies to cover it. Yes. uh, Which they should. It'll save them money in the long run. If you can know right now today, hey, in 10 years, this could pop up and you can start dealing with it now before it ever becomes a thing. Do what you can to prevent it. Right. But I just think that's amazing. And it's just so cool to know like what we can just do across the board and how it's going to help with you know cases like this and people's health and just all these amazing they can test people's mental health through these same kind of tests science is amazing it is it blows me away and think of how that would help with like these these killers to be able to like test and see what's going on in their brains yeah is it a gene is and finally answer that question like what causes these people to behave this way Mm mm-hmm Get, so cool. get the treatment as soon as possible so they don't turn into killers. Right. So amazing. Yeah, it really is. My friend Donnie grew up in Yorktown, PA. And back in the day, it was a wartime project connected to the historic landmarks with historical views. There were pull-offs, a great spot to make out or get high, basically a spot where many kids could hang out without being seen. When Donnie was 16, a couple of kids were reported missing. It was later revealed to be the last couple killed. The pull-offs, I know, isn't it scary? I literally just got chills. So when he was 16, there were news reports out of this missing couple. Oh my god. And then after a while it was revealed that they were the one the last ones killed. The pull-offs were closed in an effort to investigate. At the time, Donnie worked at Bush Gardens and he and his friends would go out and party, which of course at 16 they weren't really allowed to do. His mom specifically told him not to go anywhere near the Colonial Parkway. Now, if this was a movie, the very next scene, you'd see Donnie driving, another boy in the passenger seat, and a couple girls in the back seat. Because that's exactly what happened. (laughs) And then they would run into the killer, of course. Of course. (laughs) So this car full of teens is driving down the Colonial Parkway. So they're cruising along, and they come around a corner, and they see a car parked parallel across two lanes and a guy standing in the third lane. So all Donnie could do was stop to avoid hitting this guy or his car. Meanwhile, Donnie is yelling for his friends to lock your doors, but the girls were not fast enough or they just didn't lock the doors because this strange guy opened the back Paula, shut seat. up. I'm serious. He opened the door to the back seat and slid into the car. So the teens see this man mumbling and fiddling with his jacket, playing with the zipper. There was some kind of rustling noise against something metal, perhaps a gun. And Donnie was freaking out. The kids were driving toward the beach. Donnie was smart enough to think, we need to get someplace with people. The nearest place was a pub, so that's where they went. They all get out and they go talk to the bouncer. They tell him, we know we can't get into the pub, but this guy just got into our car from the parkway. We don't know him and we need to get rid of him. So the bouncer helped get the stranger inside. The kids jumped back into the car, and even though they had been partying, they felt they had to go to the police. Yorktown, at least at this time, was a small town. You know when you see that TV show or movie and there's a cop behind the desk when you first walk in? Well, that's exactly the setup. Donnie (laughs) remembers it clearly. (laughs) We literally just watched 
the new episode of Dexter last night. Oh my god! So Have you good. seen it yet? Yes. And yes. we were like, wouldn't it be so nice to live in a town where yes, there's three we cops? Were saying the same thing. <laughs> Just what you made me think of. Oh, totally. Three cops and the biggest thing is when pies go missing. Right, right. Little small town. So they walk in with tons of adrenaline coursing through them, and they all start telling this weird tale of the guy from the parkway jumping into their car. The policeman says he will look into it, but in the meantime, he will call their parents and let them know where they are and that they're okay. It later turns out the cops did find this guy. He wasn't the killer. He was just a man who worked as a Coast Guard who got stinking drunk and made some bad choices. He could have been killed. He, parked par- they could have been, yes. So when Donnie got home, all the lights were off and he knew he was in trouble. He heard his mom say, I told you not to drive on the parkway. <laughs> I can just see this as a movie. Totally can. Well, when you were telling the story, I'm like, this is, this is a movie. I know what you did last summer. Yeah. Yeah, Totally. <laughs> I can, like, see his mom sitting on the couch in the uh-huh. dark waiting in the for dark him to walk in the front door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Busted. He said another time on the parkway, there's a spot on the pier next to a post office that's out of the way where you can't really be seen. So, of course, that's where he and his friends were hanging out. The pier would flood and there would be all this water. So one night, they heard a voice calling for help from the water. The current pulled him further down the pier. He was eventually found clinging to a pylon. He was rescued, and later it was discovered he was also a member of the Coast Guard who had gotten drunk and made bad choices. It was just really interesting to hear these stories from someone who was there at the time. So thank you, Donnie, for sharing your experiences. Oh my gosh, yes, thank you. And man, that story about the car is insane. I thought for sure that, I don't know, what a crazy person. Yeah. To be 16 and have that happened, oh my gosh, frightening. But, like I said, Donnie was smart enough to know that we need to get somewhere with people. Yes. They went somewhere. They got help. Right. So. Thank God he wasn't the killer. Right. But what's going on with the Coast Guard in that area? I know. <laughs> Letting off too much steam. Yeah, that must be a high-stress area for the Coast Guard. I guess so, if you're getting that drunk. Getting a little loopy. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard of those. And it's really sad that they don't know who did it. No, still don't. That's crazy. So if you have any information or you're looking for information, I highly recommend the podcast and the Facebook page. And it was Mind Over Murder. Mind Over Murder is the podcast. And Kathleen's brother. Yes. I loved what he said about her saying, you know, I'm looking at all these amazing women. And what they're doing. Women becoming, you know, vice, vice president presidents and, and doing, presidents yeah. and CEOs. And what a powerful thing to say. Yes. Oh, love that. I'm going to check his podcast out for sure. And getting just as far as she did at 27, I, I have no doubt that he's right. Right. Absolutely. Oh, thanks for sharing that, Paula. Of course. Well, thanks, guys, for listening. Please check out our website for pictures and for links corresponding to each episode at dollsanddoom.com. Follow us on social media and leave us a comment. And stay alive so you don't end up on the wrong side of the grass. Bye. Bye.